Being on the front lines in the fight to educate the next generation is tough. The goal of this podcast is to provide you with important updates, encouragement, and connection. Welcome to the Institute Leaders Lifeline. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Institute Leaders Lifeline. My name is Mike Sinclair, Deputy Superintendent of School Support at the Charter Institute at Erskine. And today we're going to have a great conversation with a great friend of mine, Dr. Bill Roach. He works at the Institute currently as the Chief of Special Projects. And Bill and I have worked together since 2002, 2003, something like that, um, and never actually been in the same organization. We've crossed paths so many times, so it's great to be on the same team here. And uh, today, I hope that you enjoy some of our conversation. So, Bill, let's just kind of kick it off. You've done a little bit of everything. So give us a summary of your journey. Like, how, how did you end up here, your educational career? So I have, I have, I, I, I told a couple groups lately that I have sat in almost every seat, both on the traditional side and the charter side. Uh, started as a teacher coach, moved to an assistant principal, uh, was a traditional principal, and then moved to uh, principal of a charter school and then went to be an assistant superintendent and a superintendent, uh, then left, uh, retired from the state of South Carolina, went to be uh, the state director for an educational management organization, and then uh, August 1st came to work for the Institute. So uh, set in many different seats. That's awesome. And, and you know, sometimes I, I think it's so easy when I was a teacher to think, God, the administration would just do these things. And when I became administra an administrator, I was thinking, well, no wonder they didn't do these things. I didn't realize. And and before I became a charter principal and I was a traditional principal, I thought if the district office would just let me do my thing, and then I became a charter principal and I thought, God, if I just had a district office to do these things. So sometimes I think in any organization, my experience is in education, yours is as well, it's easy to kind of see the other roles and not understand. So what, you know, what what are some of the commonalities? that you see between roles um, that you've seen that, you know, if you've sat from teacher all the way up to superintendent and different things. You know, one of the things that I, I think runs constant from coaching, teaching all the way through to the superintendency is relationships. You have to build relationships. You have to, um, you know, I think of the, the quote from, you know, President Teddy Roosevelt, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And, you know, I saw that as a teacher, uh, kids didn't care what I knew about until they knew that I really cared about them. And as a superintendent um, with multiple degrees and a doctor, that didn't really mean anything until the folks that I was uh, working with realized that I really cared about them. And ultimately, my, my job was to make sure that what we did was what was best for kids. Right. Um, so I think that's a big piece. Uh, you know, another one that I live by is, and uh, you do too, hard work pays off. Um, I, I believe no matter what your role is, you, know, you should work hard and, and put in a, a hard day's work. Um, teacher, superintendent, assistant principal, custodian, whatever it is, uh, give your best because that's what you're doing. Um, and then I laugh, you know, Socrates says, you don't know what you don't know. As I went up, that was some things that I learned. Um, I thought I knew everything when I was a teacher, when I became an assistant principal, and I realized I didn't. Uh, then I became a principal, and, and it went all the way through to a superintendent. And you just, you don't realize what you didn't know in that seat. And then when you sat in it, you're like, oh, wow, I wish I'd have known that earlier. Right, right. What, 
What 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 common questions did you ask yourself as a superintendent to keep you grounded, or what were your thoughts to keep you grounded so you didn't forget what the life of a teacher was like? I think that's that might be a common misconception is that superintendents forgot what it's like, but how did you keep yourself grounded? One of the things I've always done and I still try to do in my job now is, is to spend time in schools. Um, it's harder now just in my role, but as a superintendent, I spend a lot of time in schools, walking around with the principals, talking with teachers, talking with kids. Um, being a former high school principal, uh, when I was superintendent, I'd go to the high school a lot, uh, just walk the halls, talk to the kids. Um, I stood on the sidelines on Friday night at football games. Um, just those things so that I would be connected to the students um, and the staff and, and the people of the community. Um, I, I think that's a big piece. You never want to lose sight of what you were hired to do. Um, and for me, uh, everything I've done in education, I, I try to always remember at the end of the day, I look and see, did I do what's best for kids? And, and that sounds simple, um, but you and I both know sometimes doing what's best for kids is not the best thing for the adults in the building. And you get some pushback because the adults won't, I mean, as we're all selfish people and we want what we want. Um, and, and if that's not what's best for kids, then you know, you gotta be able to hang your hat on that. And I, I told folks, I'm always gonna be uh, able to lay my head down at night because at the end of the day, I did what was best for kids. Um, and that was my theme. Uh, wasn't always popular, uh, but in the end it was because the kids are the ones benefited. You know, you and I both worked in high poverty uh, schools with the district and, and that was part of the success I saw is now here, now, you know, years and years later, kids go, you know, you, you never, you never judge me. You always love me. Right. And so that's, I think that's a big piece. And, and that came down to, I just tried to do what was best for them. Um, and, you know, last year when I, when I served at uh, Berkeley Prep Academy, uh, you know, we had a mantra of we're going to love them and then we'll teach them. Um, and I think that's the big piece is just loving the kids. Once they feel loved, then they can learn. Right. Well, and it kind of goes along <clears throat> with understanding kids are kids. <laughs> and, you know, one thing that I think about a lot is how the best teachers are emotionally attached to their kids. And the best way to make an objective decision is to take the emotions out. So some of our best teachers can get caught in the wash of the emotions. And so, you know, as a leader, what, what I hear you saying is doing what's best for the kids. And sometimes you have to stay objective. And that's hard to do when you're in the middle of it in the classroom. So with you going in and seeing it, being part of it, experiencing it, building that relationship. You know, and that, that comes down to having a relationship with the teacher so that you can ask them the tough questions sometimes. Um, is that really what's best? Um, you know, and, and it gets to, I've had conversations with teachers before where the kid's grade maybe, um, you know, in our days, a 69 was an F uh, before they changed the grading. Um, and so, uh, you know, a teacher wanted to give a, a student a 69. I was like, is that really what's best? You're telling me that that is what the kid's knowledge is, take away all the things. And, you know, sometimes it's just you want teachers to make sure they've thought through that because really, you don't want a bias of the teacher to make it. If a kid earned a 69, they get a 69. But many times what it is, is it's probably a 70 because the kid has 70% worth of knowledge right. for that. So, um, and, and sometimes it could be they really are 67. Um, but it's that asking the questions, but you gotta have a relationship with the teacher so that you can ask those questions. If not, they won't hear you. Right. And 
And those relationships are key. And, and I know, you know, you come from a small town. I come from a small town. I've shared on the podcast many times some of my experiences. A, a recent episode, um, I was really talking about the recipe of your life and doing some self-reflection and what are those key ingredients, meaning moments or, or people that make the recipe of who you are as a leader. And, and that's important. So who are some of the people? What are some of the events that crafted who you are as a leader? Well, you know, for me, I, I do come from a small town. And um, the one thing in my hometown was the meal. Uh, so everybody worked at the meal. Um, and I, I got to see both of my parents and most of my family work in the meal. And, and I learned quickly that you work hard and you put in a full day's work. Um, sports was always a big thing for me. That was my way to get out of that small town. Uh, to be able to get an athletic scholarship and, and go to a university and be the first person in my family to graduate from college. Um, but then once I started my career in education, there were numerous people. As a teacher, I had a principal. Alec Martin was the principal. Um, he saw something in me early. Uh, so when I had assistant principals out, he would give me a sub and I would fill in as assistant principal. Uh, so I learned those things early. Um, then I became a, an assistant principal, and Harold Batson, who's an icon in Greenville County, uh, was my first principal, and I learned a great deal from him, uh, just about how to how to lead people, how to love kids, uh, and how to stand up for what was right. Uh, and then, you know, uh, then I stepped into the charter world, and to be honest, I didn't know anything about the charter world, and luckily, you had... Uh, gone a couple years before me, so I could rely heavy on you and ask questions and, and kind of go from there. Um, and then, you know, I went and, and was an assistant superintendent. Uh, and Danny Merck, who is still the superintendent in Pickens County, I learned a great deal from him. And, and a lot of that was I learned how you can have people and you give them things and, and then just trust them they'll do it. Because uh, he entrusted a great deal in me. Um, you know, I had 26 schools under me and uh, all those principals and I spent a lot of time and he, he would come in and have tough conversations. And so I just learned a great deal about what it meant to be a leader. Uh, I never really thought about being a superintendent until I worked for him and then you know, two years later here, I was a superintendent uh, and just going through that. But yeah, you know, I, I just think a lot of it is is learning from folks and not being afraid to ask and go, hey, I don't understand. I, I don't know how to do this. Can you help me? Um, and, and just having mentors who, you know, sometimes are younger than you, but maybe know more than you do about the subject. Uh, and then, you know, always having those icons in your life that, that can invest in you. Um, so those are some, you know, just... Uh, um, keystones in my, my life and my career that have kind of helped shape who I am. Yeah. Well, you know, as you're talking about learning from others, I think, you know, so often when we get successful and we feel success or people are telling us we're successful, it's easy to feel like you've arrived. <laughs> and my thought is always the day you think you've arrived, you're actually probably lost. Yes. And, you know, like you said, no matter how far you traveled up the <clears throat> quote hierarchy of leadership, it sounds like you still found people to learn from and you never thought that you were there, that you had arrived. Yeah, no, you know, and I, and I think that comes from a small town, uh, those roots and just seeing, um, you know, both of my parents, neither one of them went to college um, and they both had job titles that required college degrees, but neither one of them had them. So uh, I learned from them that a piece of paper means something, um, but that it doesn't define who you are. And, and so, you know, that was a big piece for me just because, um, you know, you have, and, and I learned from several kids 
throughout the years, um, being a principal and assistant principal that, you know, it didn't matter how many degrees I had hanging on the wall. That really didn't matter to them. I had a young man when I was a, uh, an assistant principal ask me, he said, uh, Mr. Roach, uh, do you got to go to college to do your job? And I realized right then that he had no clue. Uh, you know, yeah, I've, I've gone in four years for a bachelor and, you know, five years for a master's degree because I did it while I was working. Um, yeah, you've got to have m many degrees, but that none of that mattered to him. And that, and that was a, a big thing I think helps keep me grounded is, um, you know, and I joke and I tell people, um, you know, yeah, I got a PhD. You know what that stands for? And they all kind of laugh and go, no, I go piled high and deep. You know, and, and I say that jokingly to folks because I don't want them to ever think, oh, he's a doctor, I've got to do this. Now, that's not why I got that. Um, you know, I got a, a doctorate degree so that I could, you know, grow in the profession. Um, and then, you know, I joke and say that nobody in my family went to college, so I got multiple college degrees to cover the whole family. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's a thing of, I, I think many times we can get wrapped up in successes um, and, and when we do that, that is when we, we tend to, to fall because there's always somebody who is smarter than us, who has done better than us. Um, and, and, I, and I think that's a humbling piece. And, you know, God tends to humble us sometimes. So I, I try to remember that and I try not to get humbled too much. Well, that's important. And that's, a, that's an important lesson. Speaking of humble, one thing that you are very humble about that I don't know that a lot of people know, you've alluded to it is, you went and played college athletics on a scholarship. I did. Um, I'm sure you learned a lot from that experience. So tell us, where, where did you play? What did you play? Tell, tell us a little bit about that. I think that I've heard the stories, and I think you're very humble. And So um, I, I was an offensive lineman. Uh, I tell folks, you know, as long as I never get back to my college weight, I weighed 275 in college, uh, and I played it from the university. And so... Uh, Luckily, was there during a great time. My freshman year, we won the uh, Southern Conference and the National Championship. Uh, my sophomore year, we won uh, the conference. Junior year, won the conference. And so I have three rings uh, from college, which is a big deal. Uh, you know, and kids always ask, oh, did you start? No, never started. Um, you know, I, I did play some. But, the, you know, the big thing is the things I learned were a whole lot more than those things. Um, you know, and it's good now because as I've worked with kids throughout the year, and even my son now, who, who's a college athlete, I'm able to help with them and say, hey, you know, these are some things that you're going to learn. These are going to help you one day. Trust me, I know right now it doesn't make a lot of sense, but one day it'll make some sense to you. Um, and, and again, I just think that helps struggle, you know, stru structure my life because as a college athlete, it, it is tough because you are you're working a full-time job and going to college too. And so just being able to balance all that, and of course, as I said, I was the first one to go to college, so nobody in my family could advise me on what right, to do. Right. Uh, so just trying to figure that out and, and having coaches to, to go to and go, hey, what do I do here, coach? You know, I'm, I'm struggling with this. Um, I think those are, are lessons, you know, that I learned uh, being part of the team, realizing that, you know, it's not all about me, that there's a bigger purpose to this. Uh, those are some big things that I learned and that, you know, everybody has to play their part. And if they don't do their part, then the whole team suffers. And, you know, just things that I've used throughout my leadership career to to try to help impact others. And, you know, I'm sure people get tired. A lot of times I bring in sports analogies and they're like, oh, my gosh, here we go again. But um, I mean, that's really what has shaped my life. Well, that's great. <laughs> and that's, you know, sometimes when our sports career ends, 
you know, I was hurt in, in, in high school playing soccer. So my junior year, thinking I was going into my senior year, and it was gone. Um, and so, you know, you got to extend it a little bit, but but then you have to redefine yourself. I did. I got hurt too. I had back surgery my junior year of college, which ended my career. Um, and so, yeah, it's very different. Um, now, all of a sudden, something that you, for me, I'd done for 15 years is gone uh, that quick. And so just to go, okay, how do I, what do I do now? Um, and, and just being able to put those pieces back together. But yeah, that is, you know, the adversity that comes from that helps you in the long run, but it's tough when you go through it. Right, right. People, yeah. Relationships that you thought you were forever suddenly aren't, and you got to figure out who you are without that Letterman jacket on or whatever that <laughs> thing is. So, you know, it, it kind of makes me think about uh, one, another topic that we talk a lot about on the podcast is balance. That as a leader, you can't get too heavy on one of the three tripods. I think of the three tripods as being your family, friends, faith, but then also your work and then your personal. And sometimes we're so busy pouring into family, friends, faith and our work that we forget our personal. So how, what are some ways you juggle that balance? What are some strategies or some hobbies you have that give you that release? You know, it, it is it's funny. Um, one of the things, and, and I say this and have said it to uh, principals for years, and I even say it to several of them now that, that I uh, advise and try to mentor is, how are you doing at delegation? Because as leaders, we try to do everything ourselves. And, and what that leads to is burnout in multiple areas because now we try to do it all ourselves. And the better you get at delegation as a leader, the better things are because now all of a sudden, one is you're trusting others to do things. You take some things off your plate, and now it frees you up to do some other things. So I, I think delegation is a big one. Um, you know, another thing, I, I made a vow that no matter what I did, I wasn't going to miss any of the life events with my kids. Uh, all three of my kids played sports. They were involved in all kinds of things. There were many times I would leave work to go to the events and might have to go back to work late at night, but I was willing to make that sacrifice. And I think... That's one of the things you have to do. But then, then that leads to the other one is your your personal uh, self. And and for me, um, you know, being an athlete, I try to stay involved. Um, of course, I don't run as much anymore because three knee surgeries and a back surgery <laughs> doesn't lend itself for running. Um, I try to walk a lot. My wife and I walk. Uh, we spend that time talking and, and doing things. Uh, but I enjoy fishing. Um, you know, I used to enjoy hunting a lot, but... Uh, with kids and events, it takes that up. And so for me, you know, I, I, try, to, I try to go to the gym. I try to still work out, uh, do some of those things. But I think the biggest thing is you have to find something to relieve stress. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I told you about Danny Merck. One of the things that he, he used to always talk about was during the wintertime, he would do a campfire and just sit and just stare into the campfire and just kind of go numb. And, and the funny piece is I've done that many times and it's so nice because you forget about all the things that's going on and all of a sudden you're out in the quiet, you hear the birds, you hear the crickets, and now uh, you, know, you just kind of feel yourself kind of settle down, but you gotta find those things. If not, you'll drive yourself crazy. And I tell people, you know, even the Energizer Bunny, sometimes the the <laughs> the, the battery's gonna run out. So you, you have to find ways to recharge. Right, well, yeah. I think I think as a society we've lost the power of silence. Yeah. We feel we fill silence with video, music, 
chit chat, whatever that is, that we're just not comfortable with silence anymore. So that that's a great strategy. And I, and I tell people, you really, you know, because you know, some people grew up in the city and they have never really been in the country. You really want to know, go out in the country at night mm-hmm. and it is really dark. And, and it's a different kind of dark because the lights of the city aren't there and uh, you can actually hear things of nature. And so those kind of things, you know, me growing up in the country in a small town, I love doing those things. So yeah, it's that quietness is is something that none of us really uh, get to experience much. Right, right. You know, that, just listening to you talk about small town and stuff, it makes me think of, for me, it's, <clears throat> that's kind of a trigger of a train whistle because being from Whitmire, train goes through the middle of town and where my grandparents lived was out of town, but you could hear the train whistle. Oh, yeah. All we had to do was hear that train whistle. My grandfather would scoop me up in the truck and we'd drive and we'd get there as quick as we could and count cars. And today my kids, my personal kids are like, Dad, what in the world? (laughs) You went to drive to count train cars, but that was it. I mean, that was fun at the day. That was trying to keep count on lose count, what kind of cars and um, those simple things, I think, keep us, kept us grounded then. And, and maybe today we lose that because we feel like we have to stay plugged in to a certain level. Yeah, you know, and, and now it's it's funny. My wife uh, jokes with me often. Um, you know, many of us have not only one cell phone, but two cell phones. Mm-hmm. And so trying to disconnect from everything with multiple cell phones um, computers, laptops, TVs, it's, it's hard. It's very hard. Um, you know, with my granddaughter many times, um, last night, matter of fact, um, she was a little fussy. So what do we do? I put her in a jog stroller. We can start walking around the neighborhood. Um, an hour later, she's asleep and I'm like, man, this is great. Cause I'm relaxed and she's yeah. asleep, but it's things that have been very easy for me to just put on a video for her to watch, which I have done many times. Um, <laughs> but you know, yesterday it was beautiful outside and we did that. She's like I say, she slept for that 45 minutes an hour and I was able just to walk and enjoy uh, nature. Right. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, that's <clears throat> thinking about funny stories and stuff. I think about um, you and I used to go to New York City all the time <laughs> uh, with the middle college. And I won't tell all the New York stories because some of them are probably left better for just us, us talking on the side. But. Um, I remember one trip, I went early, I went one time and it was hot. I never knew New York City was hot. To me, New York City was cold. I never, I'd only been once and it was in the cold rain. So it was my first time I was by myself and I walked out of the hotel in my jeans and long sleeve shirt and it was blazing. There happened to be a J. Crew across the street and I didn't have money to go buy off the rack so they had sale stuff. So I bought a pair of khaki shorts with hula girls embroidered because they were on sale. And that's honest to God while I got them because they were on sale. And then I figured, well, I'm going to be funny. And um, so I got them. And I remember a few years later, you and your wife flew up um, and my wife and I were already up there, but y'all changed flights and your luggage didn't make it. Yes. Um, so you got to borrow those hula shorts because did. you didn't have any. <laughs> I did. Um, and you are correct. Uh, you know, it, it is funny. Uh, New York is a lot different than what I anticipated uh, temperature wise. But yeah, it was funny uh, to wear those hula shorts and to have that experience. Uh, Luckily you saved me though, because it was uh, all I had was what I had in my bag because it took a couple of days for our luggage to show back up. Well, 
I'll just hit a summary of it. So and we'll, we'll end with some funny things. And if, it, it'd be thinking while I'm talking, are there any books or podcasts or things that you would recommend somebody listen to? But but uh, without going into details really too much, it was Bill's first time up there in New York. And so we flew in, we were staying. Uh, the conference was right across the Hudson in uh, Jersey City. So we, we get on the path subway and we go under the river and come up at where Grand Central was to, to change. And there's like... Port Authority with submachine guns, automatic rifles and stuff. And Bill's like, is this normal? I was like, oh, yeah, man, don't worry about it. Let's just go. Uh, and then so we get on another subway and we come up in a, a different uh, terminal. And there are police officers with automatic rifles everywhere. And they had different exits closed. And Bill's like, is this normal? I was like, no, Bill, this is not normal. <laughs> so we get up to ground level and we'd walk right into the middle of a parade. And... Uh, there were people everywhere. And so all I keep thinking is, I've told Bill, this is a fun, safe city. And he just got out of a subway with submachine guns or automatic rifles all over the place. But, uh, and of course, my staff was sitting across the street laughing at us because they knew I am not comfortable when things aren't normal. I like things to be organized and put together. But, uh, but anyway, you got any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, that was, uh, that was an eventful trip. So just even more to go with that, I had just been hired uh, from the district to go to the, the charter school. And uh, I mean, I haven't, I, I think I had been employed a, a week uh, on the like job. Right around July 4th. Yes. And so I uh, flew up there by myself. I didn't know any of my staff members who were there already. Um, so I didn't even know who I was meeting. Uh, so it was even funnier that I didn't know folks. And uh, we walk up in the middle of that parade and you and I were trying to find uh, your crew and mine. And I, I didn't even know who my crew was. Uh, but that was uh, that was the start of, you know, I look back now and that started um, my knowledge of charter schools and how that that knowledge from that progressed today and, and just my ability to be able to uh talk to board members and, and talk to leaders and say, I get it. Yeah. I, I've been there. I understand that. Um, so yeah, that, that was, uh, it didn't seem great at the time, but just because <laughs> of all of the things that went through, but all of those uh, tough times in the beginning really helped out. Like I say, my uh, starting, my, my charter school started as portables. And I tell people, even uh, when I left, we had 32 portables uh, and a deck. Uh, that, that kids assembled on. Uh, no buildings, uh, but we loved it. And the kids loved it. And the culture they, we built there was great. You know, the school now has a has a building, has a gym, uh, and all those things. And I, I laugh, and I still talk to some of the kids that graduated from there, and they say they don't even understand what it's really like. Right, right. Uh, and, and so, you know, I look back, and those were good times. They were hard, uh, but they were good because we, we, made, uh, we made that school uh, from the kids and, and, and it's the kids, all the things that they did. Right, right. You know, I'm listening to an audio book on the road so much um, called The Ultra Mindset. And it's a, it's about a, an award-winning ultra runner. He does all these endurance things. And he's going to go through, I'm at the third chapter, I think. He's going to go through these eight principles um, of success in these ultras that also would translate into life. And the the one that, that, that he's talking about right now is about... Um, adversity builds mental strength. 
And, not, and, he, and he's just talking about, it doesn't matter how hard things are, you've got to persevere right. and you teach yourself to stay disciplined, stay dedicated, no matter what's going on. And at the end, no matter, no matter what the outcome is, you're stronger mentally than you were when you started. And so um, listening to you talk about kind of building Greer Middle College out at that time right. and, and, and me with Brazier, that's, it seems so tough at the time, but when you're done, you realize you are so much mentally stronger than you realized you were. So, yeah, and and one of the things talking about reading, um, I'm not a huge reader, uh, but I've learned the reason why I wasn't a huge reader is I can't sit still and, and read a book. Uh, so for me, and they laugh here at the office, I do the same thing. I walk and read, um, and just you know, you asked me some books that I've read, um, a couple of them that that are just um, great leadership books. Jocko Willick and Leif Babin uh, have written two books, Extreme Ownership and the, the Dichotomy of Leadership, both of them from uh, the SEAL life and, and what that looks like uh, in leadership. And then another one uh, is The Boys in the Boat uh, by Daniel Brown. Uh, and it's about a, a road team and, and all the things that they go through. Uh, those are just three great books that I, I really enjoyed about leadership and, and how looking at it from a different lens um, you know, the boys in the boat is uh, just talking about you know, never giving up and striving to reach a goal and working hard and knowing that you have to do things to get that yeah. uh, as they wanted to accomplish that goal uh, of winning a championship. Um, so, yeah, you know, I find things that I, that I feel like are, are um, going to help me personally uh, or, or in a leadership role, and, and I, I try to read those. I take suggestions from folks all the time. Hey, have you read? No, I hadn't, so let me, let me find that right. one. Um, and, and so I think that's a, a big piece is in order to grow as a leader, you got to read other people's perspectives so that you can go, yeah, I agree with that, or no, I, I don't really, and here's why. Right, right. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, and we've gone a little longer than we normally do, but I really appreciate your time here. And, and, and maybe we'll revisit some of these topics in a future episode together, but um, not just for the episode or for this conversation, but thank you for your friendship for many years together. And now we're on the same team and it's exciting and we get to talk and work together and create. And so I really appreciate all that you've invested in me as a person and as a leader and now the success of this organization. So thanks for joining us for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Uh, Dr. Bill Roach, if you got any questions for him, uh, we'll put his email address in the show notes so that you could touch base with him if you got everything. But as you go through the rest of this week, make sure that you take care of yourself and take care of your team. Be sure to follow the Institute on all of our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Erskine Charters, we'll have all of these resources, including this podcast, many stories of our schools, and other things. So check us out. The opinions expressed within the content are solely the authors and do not reflect the opinions and beliefs of the Charter Institute at Erskine or its affiliates.